Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. When I read that, I was thinking about something, uh, just kind of throwing this in there, that it has this strange statement, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I was thinking about that, this image of the new Jerusalem, this city, this part of the new creation coming down out of heaven onto a restored and a renewed and a redeemed earth. And this image, this idea of a, beautiful, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And, and Jill is in the other room, and I'm sure she'll probably laugh or roll her eyes a little bit at this, but it made me think of our wedding day. And it made me think staring down the, the aisle of the church. And if, guys, you, you, I, I know the guys who are married get this. You look down that aisle, and the room could be empty. You, you, could, you could do away with every single person in that crowd because your eyes are focused on that door and the bride coming out of those doors. We always laugh because there's a video um, of our wedding, and I look at the door, and I see Jill coming, and I just mouth, wow. And that is what I see in this image here. That's what John is trying to paint for us here. I think that's why he uses this language of a bride beautifully dressed for her husband to give this imagery, to give some metaphor, to give some symbolism here for this. It's already a powerful, incredible image, but he wants to help us to understand, to see what the kind of emotion you're supposed to feel is going on here. He helps you to feel it through the sense of these words. And so you're imagining this as the first heaven, the first earth pass away. He says the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God. And the, the, the idea is this reality that we look and we say, wow, wow. Then he goes on and he describes the emotion of this. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, these words that I just read, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. These are the opening words of the chapters 21 through 22 in the book of Revelation, the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, what I've discovered and what I wanted to help us understand and to see with this, and, and what I want you to see, the, the reason I wanted to teach this book, why I thought this was so important for us, is that Revelation it, it can be broken up into what I consider four sections or four movements. And if you go back to the book, anytime, if you, if you read it again, if you look at it in the future, however you look at it, I want you to think about this book in four movements. John, the writer of this book, is writing this to a group of persecuted Christians. This is his audience. 
persecuted Christians in the first century in the Roman Empire, followers of Jesus who have chosen Jesus, who have made the statement, Jesus is Lord over everything else in their life. He is the one that they follow. Now, this was incredible because Caesar was Lord in their world. Caesar was the most important thing. Caesar was Lord, the Roman Empire, because everything was tied in with the Roman Empire. What you believed, what you understood about the world, faith and politics and religion, all intersected into this thing called the Roman Empire. And so in that, Caesar was Lord, not simply a political figure, but a deity, a God-like figure. And so to say Jesus was Lord, to say that Caesar was not, it was to tear down all of this stuff and say, there is no Roman Empire that matters. There is no Caesar that matters. All that matters in my life is Jesus. That's a huge statement to say in our world. It was a huge statement to say back then. And it led to persecution. And so John, like most writers in times of persecution, responded what we call apocalyptic literature. And that's what this book is, ancient apocalyptic literature. A definition for this that I've given over and over again is this, that it's a mix of political satire, protest language, and an invitation to see the world in a new way. And this this protest language, this political satire, this invitation to see the world in a new way was written to these persecuted Christians as the original readers of this text and handed down over time. And we are able to look at it, to see what we can learn from it. How did they read it and how may that apply to us today? And so we've spent the last several weeks walking through this text through what I call these sections or movements. And you're going to see this is critical. This is so important for us to see. It's always important for us to look at a text, to look at a book, and to not just read it for face value, but to peel back some layers, to see the context, to ask the kind of questions that we need to ask about it. The places where it's uh, difficult to read or it feels like it's, it's strange, those are the times to lean in. When we're uncertain about it, we ask, the sor- we ask uh, sources, academic sources, and we say, what's going on here in this book? What is happening here so we can understand the original context? Because if we don't understand the original context, we're in danger of taking it out of context, missing the point that the book was having for us and leading us into directions that we don't want to go. So we tear back the context, we discover what we're finding here. And what we found, and what I want to do over the next couple minutes before we come back to these chapters, is just take us through a quick walk. What have we discovered along the way? What are the questions that we found? And what do these movements, or these sections, but more like movements of this book, help us to see and help us to understand? And where are they taking us, and how are they directing us towards this conclusion? Now, the first movement is found in chapters 1 through 3. And as we found, it draws upon what were called imperial edicts. The idea that Caesar would stand before a crowd in, in, a, um, in some kind of setting like uh, uh, royal games or, or a visit from the emperor. And he would stand in these crowds and he would give out these imperial edicts. I compared it to, in the first week, I compared it to in the musical Hamilton, the king, the message from a king. And that's the idea here is that the king has a message, and it's a royal edict. And someone would stand up, trumpets would play, and someone would say, listen to Caesar, listen to the emperor, here is what he has to say. And he would speak to the people who were there, and he would also speak to their leaders, and he would say the good things that he sees. 
And he would also talk about the bad things that he sees from them. And then he would challenge them about what he expects them to do. So John takes this image, this thing that would have been very familiar to the people in the Roman Empire that he was writing to, and he wraps the words of Jesus around this idea of this imperial edict and gives a challenge to people, a challenge for these persecuted Christians to hold on to their faith amid crisis. He tells them that, that the idea is that they, he knows that in their faith that what's happened to them is they have become lukewarm about it. They've kind of accepted the world as it is. They kind of have come to this conclusion, oh, well, you know, we're Roman citizens, we're part of this, you know, it's just kind of the way it is, it's kind of the reality of the day. And, and what John does is he recognizes this is one of the most dangerous realities that they could face. Lukewarm faith. Just an acceptance of the way things are leads Christians to avoid suffering around them. It leads them to avoid pain around them. It leads them to miss the reality of who they're meant to be amid the situations that they're facing. And he says, lukewarm Christians, what does that even mean? What do you do? How boring is that? That's not world-changing. We're called to be a part of something incredible, something amazing, seeing a hope and a, and a beauty of the world and helping bring that into reality. He said, hold on to your faith. Don't become lukewarm. Have a strong faith that is centered on the way of Jesus and the reality that this world can change around us. Don't accept things for the way that they are, but see something different. This is the imperial edict given out to these people. So that's how the first section kind of works out, and this is how it closes. In Revelation 3.22, that section closes out with whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the questions that we ask, and this is a challenge, this is a statement, if you have ears, hear it. And what that meant in this context was, don't just listen to it, do something about it. Don't just hear these words, put them into practice. That's, that's the idea here, is let them hear it. So here's the questions. In what ways are you allowing your faith to become stale? What practices do you need to put in place? In what areas is your faith not visible to others? Now, I'm not going to answer those questions for you. Those are questions for you to ask. In what areas have you allowed your faith to become stale? What practices do you need to put in place in your own life to help bring your faith to the forefront? And in what areas is your faith not visible to others around you? These are challenging questions for us. But we also live in a time of crisis right now. It's easy for us to look around and say, well, this is just the way things are. But what does it mean for followers of Jesus to lean into that reality and see that there, this is not it? This is not the only reality. And to believe and have hope and call others to that truth and that reality. Now, from this first movement, this challenge, the book moves into a second movement, chapters 4 through 5. Chapters 4 through 5 are beautiful. They're a vision of a throne room uh, uh, where God is eternally ruling. I wrote this down and pulled this from my notes from that week. We're invited with John readers to see that the powers of this world are parodies, imitation copies of the ruler of heaven and earth. And John invites us to see that all power on earth pales in comparison to the greatness and the goodness of God ultimately found in Jesus. Think about that. The power of this world. John is saying, look, Caesar pales in comparison to the greatness and the goodness of God. 
He pales in comparison to Jesus. He says, listen, I want you to see that there is a throne room right now, right here, right now, in this moment where God is eternally ruling. He's not saying this is some future reality. He's saying this is here right now. And as followers of Jesus, he's saying if you're not going to, you, you can't be lukewarm in your faith. And you also have to see that there's something way bigger going on around you than what you can see. He said, if I peel back the layer, if I peel back the curtain on this, if I pull it back, you're going to see that God is eternally ruling on his throne. And every power and every reality you see around us, these are just imitation, parodies, copies of that. Now for us, there's so many ways that we could apply that today. We could look at the things around us and we could say, you know what? The, the, this, uh, the, this reality that we see causing suffering or pain people who are, who are being uh, causing injustice. You know, this is the truth around us is that we see the powerful stepping on the weak all the time in our world. This is the reality of injustice. And we can say, you know what? Their power is not real. They don't actually have any power. The true king still rules on his throne. And for others of us, we have spent so much of our lives trying to set up our own kingdoms, trying to have amass as much power as we can on our own. Now, sometimes we get knocked down and we're reminded, you know what? We don't have that much power. We don't have that much control. We don't have that much uh, control over our own reality and the reality around us. We can't really build our own kingdoms. But this is a reminder for that as well. You could spend your whole life trying to build your own kingdom, trying to master your own power and your own wealth. And John says, what a parody of what's really going on. It's a sad imitation of the truth that God is the only true king and you are not. And he invites us to see that, to see this reality. And he says, what are you worshiping? And he closes this section with an incredible image of the worship of Jesus. Let me read that to us. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. This is Revelation 5. Numbering thousands upon thousands. And 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. All of those things that we try to amass, he says, don't belong to us. Wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise belongs to Jesus and his kingdom. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. And this is a call for us to join in worship of the true King. In true worship of Jesus. To recognize and see that when we hand all those things over to him, for his kingdom, the world has changed around us. Do you remember that Jesus told us to pray for his will, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? What if in, instead of trying to take all the power, the wealth, and the wisdom, and strength, and the honor, and the glory for ourselves, for our kingdoms, and for the kingdoms and the empires of this world. What if we reserved all of that for Jesus and his kingdom? And what if we prayed for that kingdom to take place in this world and we began to fund and support and pray for and give strength and energy and time to that work? 
how much different would the world look? So the questions we have are this. So many people, ideas, or empires claim to be worthy of our worship, but they're a sad imitation of the only one who deserves worship. So who or what are you choosing to worship? What is it in this life that you are finding most worthy? What would it look like for you to exchange your worship of those things for the worship of Jesus? Now, the third movement follows this. In chapter 6 through 20, a massive section, but one that is tied up in this idea of movement. In this section, John uses symbolism, like 666, to create a scathing critique of the Roman Empire. And I don't want to get too far into this. We talked about it last week. Things like 666 and Mark of the Beast and the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. These words that often get translated so unfortunately that people pick them apart and say, oh, you know, uh, that, that symbol stands for this thing today. And, and I just want to remind us, that's not what's happening here. These first three movements are focused on a time in history. John is writing to his context. Yes, we can learn from it. Yes, we can see how that applies to our world today. But this is not about the future. He's not there. He is talking specifically in this language. 666, and I I talked about this last week, I won't get too far into it, points specifically to Nero and Caesar, the Roman Empire. That's what that number stands for. And John, in the 6 through 20, gives a scathing critique of his experience and the persecuted people of his time and their experience of the Roman Empire because people had chosen to worship that instead of Jesus. So he says, "Here's, here's where you're lukewarm. Then he moves into the next movement, He says, here in this movement is who you should be worshiping. And three, he says, and here's the Roman Empire. And here's what the Roman Empire has brought upon us and why they're not worthy of any of our worship and why they're ultimately going to fail and how God is truly going to win. We see that John uses imagery to point to and show us the ugliness of the way of empire. The words in this section also warn us of how the way of empire tempts us to give up to the idea that the ugliness, suffering, and pain around us is just the way things are. Last week, I said that John's warning shows us the temptation to choose hate and greed and revenge and to give up on the radical way of Jesus, the way of love and grace and peace. What would happen if we chose to confront the reality we live in? What if we pushed back against the temptation of consumerism, injustice, and indifference? The empire tempts us to give up to the idea that ugliness, suffering, and pain around us is just the way things are. Now, I want to lean into that for a minute, and then we're going to get to the closing section and and finish up this, this series. I'm going to show you where this is going to lead us. At the center of the story of our faith, at the center of the story of Jesus, is a cross. The cross represents suffering, pain, and sacrifice. As Jesus willingly walked the road to the way of suffering, to the way of pain, for us, but also because of us. 
Now, I want to be very careful here because I want to help bring a theological implication to this that I think is so important for us to understand because it's so easy to miss this reality. The cross was the cross of the Roman Empire. We often call it the cross of Jesus, and yes, it was the cross that Jesus was put upon, but the cross was created by the Roman Empire. It was the ultimate picture of their injustice, of their hatred, of their way of shoving down anger and viciousness and violence upon this world. And what is so incredible and so amazing about the cross is that God responds to the ugliness and the violence of this world. The destruction, the, the, the absolute disgusting nature of empire. And Jesus is killed by that. His life is snuffed out. His goodness and His mercy, His grace, His way of love was a threat to the way of the Roman Empire and the threat to the people around them. And he was placed upon a Roman cross. What's amazing about the story is that God says that is not the end of the story. That is not how this concludes. Empire, violence, injustice does not win the day. And in a few months, we celebrate the resurrection, the reminder of newness, the reminder that out of that comes Jesus's resurrection that reminds us of a new way of life in a new world. He says, ultimately, that does not win. So here's where we stand. We stand amid a reality of suffering, pain, and sacrifice all around us. That is the way of the cross. And we are told to pick up our cross, to carry our cross, to, to, to be people like Jesus. But we also recognize that in that suffering, in that pain, in that sacrifice, that is not the end of story, that there is hope on the other side. And that's what John does. That's the amazing thing about this book is we find the next movement of this book. In 1 through 3, John was speaking to this moment, to this world, for these persecuted Christians in their context. We still stand in that world where suffering and pain and sacrifice is all around us and is a part of the message and the story of followers of Jesus. But we also point to a hope because we know that that's not the end of the story. We are resurrection people. We are people who believe in the power of resurrection. And that's what John points to next as he closes out this incredible book. In Revelation 18, the close of that third movement, John said, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, you not receive any of her plagues. And this is where a significant transition takes place. Up until this point, the book wasn't focused on the future. It was focused on symbol and metaphor, pointing to their experience, their reality, challenging them to have their faith and see their experience in a new way. And then he turns the corner. He says, come out of that. You, you live among this, but this is not what you should only see. I want you to see a hope and a future. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Listen to this. For the old order. The old order of things has passed away. When we get to this fourth section, John brings in another common element of apocalyptic literature. This element and this movement focuses on the future hope. Where the current experience of suffering and pain is gone and a new vision for the world is revealed. Revelations chapters 21 through 22, what just, just a portion of what I just read, reveals a new creation, a future reality where God redeems, restores, and renews this world. This is language that you hear us talk about a lot at Southeast, where God redeems, restores, and renews. See, we are now not yet people. We are people who live in the day of resurrection, who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and that in that moment, his kingdom was set in place, where he is redeeming, restoring, and renewing this world. And there is a tension in that reality because on this side, you have the old order of pain and suffering and empire and greed and ugliness and hatred and racism and injustice and all of those things that we see coming from this place. And we see the grace and the mercy and the goodness of Jesus as God's will for this earth to look like heaven is pressing in together. And we live in that tension. But this book reminds us that these things that make up the old order of things, the cross is defeated. And in resurrection, the only thing that exists in that future reality is this. The love and the mercy. The reality of Christ. These concluding chapters are an invitation to see beyond where you are today. And this is not a new idea. The poetic story of creation and of the garden in Genesis invites readers to understand the human experience as humanity walked away from God toward their own desires that opens up the door to the suffering and pain of this world. From this point on, God promised to restore that broken reality. And this that we just read is that promise coming into full fruition. I, I love this quote. It's from a man named Michael Gorman. He's an influential scholar and teacher of the book of Revelation. And I love how he describes the poetic conclusion of Revelation, how it draws imagery from the poetic language of Genesis. Listen to what he says. He says, The original garden that became a source of curse and death because of human disobedience is now an urban garden. So he says, look, the, the, the garden 
that we see in Genesis, that, that poetic language that gives us that picture, became a source of curse and death because of human disobedience, is now, here in these closing chapters of Revelation, an urban garden. The place where millennia of human civilization come to fulfillment and national, national finally live in peace, where blessing and life replace the original curse and death. The original garden that became a source of curse and death because of human disobedience as people walked away from the way of God is now an urban garden, a place where human civilization comes to fulfillment, where people from every background, every tribe, all people come together and live in peace. It's a picture where blessing and life replace the original curse and death. The opening words of Genesis give us a way to see the vision of walking away from God. These closing chapters in Revelation give us a vision of walking toward God. And at the center of both of those realities is something fascinating. It's God dwelling with his people. The Genesis story gives the imagery of God walking through the garden he created. And in Revelation here, he dwells in this city, walking among his people. Listen again what that says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So the people... The image is in Genesis, walking away from the dwelling of God. And in Revelation now, it's walking back towards the dwelling of God. And this word dwelling is so important. It's found throughout scriptures. It's a reality and a promise made over and over again. But these words are also a reminder that this future reality of God's eternal dwelling with us in a redeemed, restored, and renewed world is because of Jesus. Jesus showed us a glimpse of this future in his life. And he invited us into that journey that leads us into this incredible reality as we follow him, the word dwelling with us. Listen to the opening of John chapter 1, often read at this time around the Christmas season. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So in the beginning, in Genesis, we see God dwelling among His people and His people walking away. In Revelation, because of Jesus, we see people walking back towards the city of God as God promised to dwell among His people. And then in between those two realities, we see Jesus. The Word became flesh, dwelling among us. In Jesus, we see heaven and earth united. As John says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And in Revelation, we see heaven and earth joined forever. The, ho- the hope of a new reality made real because of Jesus. Now listen, this is how I put it in my notes, and it's so important I wanted to read this to you. In his life, we were given the gift of God's presence, the perfect image of our Heavenly Father in Jesus. Now over the next few weeks, we enter the Christmas story. The incredible story of the birth of Jesus as God entered our world through a child born in a stable. We discover that this child is the perfect gift from God who made a way for us. But listen to this. Whose life gave us a glimpse of heaven touching earth. A glimpse of what is to come as God restores, redeems, and renews this world. In Jesus, we see the most unlikely come true, God dwelling among his people. And we see throughout his life what that looks like. And then John in Revelation gives us this picture of this future reality and says that glimpse that you saw in Jesus through his life death, and resurrection opened the door for us to have hope, to walk towards God dwelling with his people, where all suffering is gone, where all tears are wiped away, where his goodness and his mercy is always present among us. And he says, have that hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you today for this incredible story, to see, God, what you have to tell us through this book of Revelation that takes us through these four movements that remind us the reality of the world that we have today, the call to follow Jesus, to see his life, giving us a picture of a future reality of hope, God, where you dwell eternally with us. Father, help us to be followers of Jesus, not lukewarm followers, but followers of Jesus who put everything we have in our lives to following him. And Father, let us follow Jesus towards your way, towards your love and your grace and your mercy in this world, and let us push hard against the way of this world mercy, the inju- or the, the justice, the ugliness that we see around us, Father. And let us have hope in you. It's your name we pray. Amen.